Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Piero Inchiza della Rocchetta here in the studio today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. So your grandfather uh, started what is arguably one of the most famous wines in the world uh, at Tenuta Sanguido in Bulgari in Tuscany. He started Sasakaya. Uh, what, what was your grandfather like? I, I know you grew up in, in that area in Bulgari. What was that childhood like? A privileged one in the sense that he was a very... Uh, intelligent, inspired man with a vision and uh, very much dedicated to his passions, wine being one of them, but not the only one. In fact, uh, agriculture and and farming and um, thoroughbreds were very much um, uh, part of his interest and his life. So it was, it was uh, you know, a privileged relationship in the sense that a grandfather doesn't have the same responsibility <laughs> to his, his nephews as a, as a dad would. Uh, so uh, it was a childhood filled also with uh, laughter, pranks. He was a prankster, uh, but also a lot of mental stimulation. You know, I, I remember when often we asked uh, what something meant whether it was a, a, an object or a word or, and he would make us stand up, go and grab the encyclopedia. This was pre-internet area and, uh, and go through until we found that word and read out loud to the other nephews that were usually at the table. And, and so it is it, is an individual that made us think, and he was very much ahead of his time for multiple things, you know, he he wrote uh, uh, books about agriculture as well, and um, he was uh, very much within the parameters of, of biodynamic philosophy without necessarily articulating that way. But the respect from the environment and the biodiversity of, of, of nature, the importance of having multiple type of cultivations within a farm and the animals and 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 and, and underlining the importance of not using chemicals or or, or, or agents that would be uh, not uh, not good for the environment. So it was fun. It was fun. I think that uh, you know at that age you don't really uh, you're not aware of 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 
what you're experiencing, what what you're living, what you're what you're doing, and in in a very eerie way, uh, when I started my own uh, winery, which started a little bit as an experiment down in in South America, uh, a lot of people asked me about my grandfather, and that's when I I made the link that I I thought I was maybe doing something out of my own choice, but maybe those choices were somewhat. Uh, you know, the seed of those choices maybe started in, in those days as a child. So um, maybe I was just redoing what I had experienced before. So he, he worked with horses on the estate. But uh, yes, he, he had, uh, he shared an incredible passion with my grandmother for uh, thoroughbreds. My grandmother family historically also had thoroughbreds that they breed and, and they raised. And an opportunity presented itself to uh, acquire a percentage of the stables of Mr. Federico Tesio, which was known as the horse whisperers. It was known as, as maybe the most, you know, the maverick of his times in, ter- in terms of horses. Uh, I believe that he had gone through financial uh, difficulties after the... Um, the market crash, um, I think his brother had you know, lost a lot of money. So they were looking for partners, and I believe that my grandfather and Mr. Tezio had a, a, a money manager in common or a lawyer in common, something like that. So the opportunity uh, was brought forth uh, simply because I think my, my grandmother had that passion, and my grandfather bought half of the stables. Uh, it was called Dormello Giata, which... Uh, actually became Dormello Giata because Olgiata was a property that my, my family owned next to Rome and Dormello was where uh, Mr. Tesio kept the yearlings uh, on, on Lake Maggiore. And so that's how it started and uh, it was a, an, incre- an incredibly uh, successful venture. They won uh, at a certain moment absolutely everything, extremely dominating. And I think that, uh, you know, my grandfather always wanted to be a little bit more involved. And Mr. Tezio always told him, Mario, don't worry. You come to the race, the horse wins, you collect the cup, and <laughs> and uh, and you don't have to be involved with the tedious aspect of training and breeding, which frustrated somewhat my grandfather, I think. But uh, then he showed up at the races, the horse won, he collected the cup, and he, and he had to go with the protocol. This until Mr. Tezio died, which incidentally was right around the time that our most famous horse came to life, was uh, Ribo, which won the every single race he, he, he did. And he also won the Arc de Triomphe back-to-back with a staggering uh, distance between the first and the second horse. And uh, Mr. Tejo never really got to see that. And, and that's when my grand, grandfather, I think, fully started to manage the stables. And uh, it, it really defined a large portion of his life, I think. And you had on the estate, which is fairly large in Pogri, you had uh, jockeys living there. In- well, yeah, we still do. You know, the, it's, a, it's a family tradition that we've kept that has been also a, a great passion of my dad that moved to England and oversee, you know, oversaw some of the breeding and the training. Um, the main facility remains in Bulgari where we have stables as well as, um, as places where the horses get to train in the morning, you know, different tracks on different surfaces. And then we have um, a place uh, that we kept on the Lake Maggiore where the, um, the fowls are and, and, and we keep some horses over there. I, I don't partake in any of these activities. Today is, is my uncle 
was my uh, dad's little brother, who not only is the chairman, managing director of our family businesses, but he he oversees personally the horses. So it's very much uh, of a passion and. Uh, and uh, but you know we do not in in any sh- way shape or form have the same profile that what we used to since the discovery of petroleum and um, and the um, sheikhs catching the bug of of, of uh, horse racing they invest uh, a staggering amount of money and although we make oil is olive oil not <laughs> not that kind of oil so it's it's difficult i think to compete at the same level but nevertheless the passion remains and 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 um, we, we're still going at it and there was a bird sanctuary uh, as well that your grandfather yeah my grandfather uh, was uh, one of the very early participants in the world uh, wild fund um, and he created uh, within the the Tenuta Sanguido, which is the property in which uh, our wines are made in Tuscany, he created a bird sanctuary in the lower part of the estate, which he enclosed. So if you're actually going to see and observe the birds in there, you are the one which is in a cage a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but there is there is corridors with observation points and allow you to 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 see the different type of animals and the idea was to provide a safe haven for uh, birds that were migrating um, so that uh, the avid hunters in those days would not massacre them all um, so he was oddly enough in my in my family I think everybody starts hunting when they're kids and then by the time they reach 25 30 years old I think everybody stops and and they turn the other way I mean there's no vegans in my family, but fostering uh, nature. Uh, yeah, I don't think anybody hunts of my generation, and quite the contrary, we're looking to protect what we have, um, and to preserve uh, the environment for the next generation. In a way, you know, it's a it's a it's a responsibility, uh, I think, uh, to be the guardians and to protect what was uh, very much protected to the centuries. In fact. You know, the, uh, we're, we're very privileged. We have a large estate, but we have never done uh, any real estate development or anything like that. So we've never given in to to monetary temptation. And I think this is the, the most treasured assets of our of our family. Anyway. What was rural life like as, as a child when you were younger? Was that something that was not cool? Or, I mean, today it seems like everyone wants a small place in the country and to get closer to nature. I hated it. I hated it because I wanted a scooter and I wanted to be with my buddies. Instead of the school, you end up going home and you're playing by yourself and, you know, maybe using a magnifying glass to set up things on fire or to kill ants or you grab your grandfather's, you know, wartime rifle and you blow up uh, frogs in the middle of the night while you, 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 you point a flashlight at them. So some highs and some lows. Uh, in retrospective, I think that I hated it, but I'm grateful I've had it. I'm grateful that you had to be inventive and be in nature and observe uh, everything and experienced it. Uh, and I think that's, that's a, a great wealth that was, was given to us. Of course, you're miserable because you want to have a scooter, hang out with the boys, go to the city, eat pizza. Uh, but we lived a very, uh, you know, I had no chocolate, no Coca-Cola, no burgers, no 
nothing. Was, you ate what the adults ate. There were no cellular phones. There was one TV with three black and white channels. <laughs> That's pretty much it. So it's about spending your time outdoors and, and with nature. And you mentioned that your grandfather was a writer. Uh, he wrote a couple books. And what were those like? But he, bought, he wrote a book on Mr. Tezio uh, that a little bit described his experience and the life of, of what they lived in those days. Uh, he wrote a book on uh, religion, and uh, he wrote a book on agriculture. And I believe that the book on agriculture, it, it's still adopted by a curriculum at the University of Pisa, which is... Uh, Agriculture University, but it, it was it was more towards the end of his life that he started to 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 write, um, and it's you know to me they're interesting because they get you into um, they get they get yeah, it, through the books you 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 get a glimpse of his of his deeper thoughts or more intellectual thoughts that you wouldn't really be able to understand as a kid. So you, you, you understand the fabric and the depth of the man, um, which is also a product of its generation and what they went through and, 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 and you know, World War II, the difficulties, um, the arrival of, of petrochemical companies, um, fertilizers. I mean, you know, there's many different aspects in what he wrote, but uh, for me, those are the ones that stayed with me the most. And... Uh, and they still have an impact on me today. As a matter of fact, I pick it up from time to time, and uh, especially the one on agriculture is the one that interests me the most. And how did your grandfather first get involved with wine, or at least winemaking? What was that process about? But I believe that uh, my grandfather, who was uh, from uh, a Piedmontese father and a Roman mother, had this duality of you know discipline and chaos. Uh, Piedmont is a family of of um, you know military people. Rome, a little bit more chaotic. And he grew up uh, with in, a, in privileged circumstances, so he was exposed primarily to Piedmontese and French wines. Um, you know, Piedmontese cuisine in those days was probably the most refined cuisine in, in, in Italy, and so were the wines. I mean, Tuscan wines, you know, they were extremely uh, rustic and, and didn't really travel well. And, and so I think he, he developed a palate for um, a certain type of cuisine and wine. And... Um, after World War II, when those wines from France were not traveling as much because um, the borders were, were a lot less porous and, and countries rebuilt themselves and goods did not necessarily travel as easy as they did before, he, he was, I think, frustrated with uh, the overall quality of Italian wines, which did not really, were not to his likings. You know, he, he developed a different type of palate. And so he set out to experiment on the property in Bulgari with uh, what he believed were the more suited grapes. You know, he wasn't particularly a lover of Sangiovese, which he found uh, finicky, difficult, and, 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 and not as noble. And so he got some clippings from a friend of his that uh, uh, was making some Cabernet uh, not far from where we were, and uh, it started as an experiment. In those days, uh, it was believed that you couldn't really grow successful vineyards that would yield interesting wine by the by the sea because of, there's a lot of salt in the air. So he carved the first vineyard of Sasikaya in a in a in, in the middle of a forest on 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 on, on, on a, behind a hill, and that's how the experiment started. 
and then uh, luckily he he captured it. But his his vision and his goal was never to do something for the public, something that was commercial. I think he it's very much along the you know the ways that the large chateaus were created in 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 in, in France maybe. Of course, with a little different twist, because my grandfather lived in the countryside. It's not that he lived in Rome and he came to to the countryside. He very much loved the countryside. That's where he resides. But it, it was an you know an an experiment that that he kept doing, and and in time it paid off. Uh, and it was really built from nothing. There was no vineyard there. No, previously. there was no vineyards. I mean, there was no appellation. Volgari was you know some people made some rosé, but it was not very good. As a matter of fact, I mean, look, uh, um, this was very much of a, of a, of a uh, an historical uh, understanding that uh, Marema, where we are, you know, was the land for, for, that was forgotten by humans and by God. Uh, it was swamps before, when then was drained by the Medici family, Lorenzo de Medici. I think that my family historically had some some animal, you know, like a cow that uh, occupied uh, the estate. And plus, in the old days, it was not very fashionable for people to go to the beach, no, because uh, to be tan meant that you were poor because you worked in the fields. And I see. People strive to have this uh, very white skin, so it wouldn't make that much sense. I think we, my family, though, my grandmother's family, the Gerardesca, they, they lived in that area and uh, they became avid hunters and taking care of the land. And so when my grandfather uh, married, uh, incidentally, my grandmother's sister married an Antinori and they never thought of planting wine there. And they are 26th generation of winemaking. So that goes to show you that it was not an area that was believed to have the qualities necessary to provide the terroir that would yield uh, superior quality grapes. And why do you think he moved towards uh, grapes uh, more along the Bordeaux model rather than, say, Burgundy? I think that Burgundy was very much of his, it would have been his first pick because I remember when we were in Switzerland and I spent a lot of weekends with them in the winter because I went to boarding school and, and they used to spend their winter there. Uh, the wines that he drank was primarily was Burgundy. But Bulgari, it's not very uh, versed for for Pinot. Uh, Bordeaux blend is really what works the best. So I think that he observed, uh, he observed and understood uh, the microclimate and the terroir on hand, and then he followed what, in his opinion, was the most um, educated guess and uh, I think that uh, he was a vision he experimented and he also was the recipient of luck you know uh, uh, luck in the sense that uh, is the place where opportunity meets preparation he was prepared he was willing he and he did it and so I, I think that that's the reason why and he proved to be right because I think that Volgari is uh, probably uh, much more versed for Bordeaux blend, and I think Sassicaia is, is 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 a result of that. And what are those vineyards like? Are they fairly high up, or is it more uh, on the plain, or what? what is yeah, the... but no, our vineyards are primarily they're always on a slope. Some of them, the slope is 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 more pronounced because they're all the way up on a hill. Uh, the Castiglioncello vineyard was the one of the very first ones to be planted. Uh, 
and the soil composition is is completely different. Um, you know, it's um, it, it's a um, Tenuta San Guido has soils that nobody else has in Bulgaria. So, and that's Sasikaya is a product of that. And um, the closer you get to the beach, the more the soils are sandy, and and they completely change the not just the biodiversity of the place, but also the character of the wines um, because the terroir is radically different. So Sassicaia's vineyards are, are primarily on the upper part of the estate. If you look at the Appalachian, it starts from the hills and it extends towards the middle of the estate. And uh, they sit in different locations, which I think that's also what gives the complexity to the wine. You know, it's... It, 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 today, if you come... You know, you look, ah, yeah, it makes sense. But it didn't make sense when he was making it. It makes sense in his own head. You know, he carved a forest to plant the vineyard so that the night would be cooler, but it also be prepared, you know, um, how can I say, they would be um, uh, protected uh, by certain microclimatic conditions that maybe he felt were unwanted. So it was very much studied and, and thought after, and, 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 and these are the results. You know, in a funny way, sometimes when, when foreigners articulate things, one, one gets a little bit more present to, the, to its good luck, but I always remember a cab ride in New York from the house of a distant cousin of mine to an art gallery, and with a uh, very uh, famous... Uh, producer who owns one of the first growth in, in Bordeaux, with whom we were going to uh, do a joint venture that then didn't, didn't pan out. And he was, uh, in a sense, uh, maybe slightly lamenting the fact that we didn't go through with the, with the, uh, the joint venture. And I said, look, uh, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't part of the, of the, of this, but uh, family is family, so it's. Uh, I'm sorry it happened, but I, I'm not sure what what to say. But I said, if you want, I can give you a hand in finding alternative plots where you can plant your vineyards. And he turned around and he said, there is only one problem: the right terroir is all in your hands. So it it it, it was a comforting. I mean, coming from a Bordelais, you know, that is it's so important. You give a little bit more importance to these things, but. You know, it, it goes, in fact, but uh, previous to this, my grandfather did had a, a relationship with another first growth uh, uh, owner, uh, which also had thoroughbreds, and they were exchanging notes, and they were calling each other colleagues, uh, so, which is funny. So there is a link. Uh, but yes, so I think that one of the characteristics of, of our vineyards, and, and, and which is reflected very much in the, in the, in the DNA, in the fabric, in the in the expression of the quintessential expression of Sasikaya is this freshness that it carries through, you know, and, and, and that's very much, uh, in a sense, a byproduct of the terroir that it finds. Then one also, in my opinion, has to talk about uh, terroir, and obviously terroir is also composed by men because wine does not mix itself, and, and, and man plays a, a paramount role in, in, the, in the way the, the style uh, of the wine and in the way the, the terroir is interpreted. And I think that uh, we were lucky to have uh, in my uncle Nicolò a, um, a person that understood what he had and applied a very gentle hand 
to uh, both on, on the agricultural point of view and on the winemaking point of view. And, and I think that's reflected in the wine. You know, I remember uh, certain decades where some of our distributors uh, were asking us to make wines that were more concentrated, more extracted. And he, he always stayed the course. And it takes, a, a, you know, it takes a very specific type of man not to be intimidated, to, you know, to, and to make the decision that you believe are right, regardless of what the market might tell you. And uh, in fact, uh, I think Sasikaya always preserved a very low alcohol, was never a wine known to be with a lot of, of oak or with a lot of extraction or density or concentration. I think it's, it's, it's very much reminiscent of the old style Bordeaux in a way. So uh, I think that, that also what, what, um, you know, what, what played the role in the history of what Sasikai has begun today. You know, usually it takes multiple people to, 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 to get to such a prized uh, destination. And I, I don't know how else to explain it. I think my grandfather had a vision, but then it takes someone that is there every day for 40, 45 years and, and, and cultivates that and, and stays the course, you know. So, in fact, the funny thing, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people ask me, why are you making Pinot, considering that you come from a tradition of, of making a wine that is so big and bold and extracted? Right there and then I know that this person never drank Sasikaya because it's neither big, bold, nor extracted. Uh, it's quite the contrary, actually, you know. Uh, I, I think it's the most uh, soyeux of, of all the, the, the super Tuscans, in a way, you know, besides the fact that I think was also the genesis of this, of this definition. But... Um, I, I think that, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's the style of the wine. And what is the evolution of, of what has been made there in the forties? It got started, but it was something more for the family. No, not something more for the family. It was for the family. Uh, the idea for him was to make a wine that he could drink at home. So, uh, he made a, a wine that he drank at home and the idea was not to sell the wine he believed that once you make a product for sale, you inevitably end up cut, cutting, you know, cutting corners. Sure. For for profit, and luckily he didn't have to have this. Um, this he didn't have this necessity. It was it was privileged. Uh, so the idea was, you know, he always. Uh, I remember one of the things that I remember him saying is, is that it takes the same amount of time and usually the same amount of money to do something perfect or to do it completely wrong. So I think that that was his approach and with pretty much anything in life, you know, he was not just a, a winemaker or a farmer, he was an architect, he was, he was many things. He was one of those Renaissance men that tried his hands on things and, and, and was successful, but he was a painter as well. <clears throat> but um, no, I think that um, um, the, he never wanted to sell the wine. In fact, uh, when when uh, I think he was convinced by my uncle uh, Antinori uh, to give them some wine for them to distribute, because one vintage I think there was a little bit more production, so two bottlings were made in 1968, one for the family and one for the market. I think that he got very upset and he says, "Fine, then you guys start doing the wine." I mean, you guys, you guys, mean my my uncle Nicola or not? And he said, uh, "And I'm going to make my own wine." And he started to make a different wine called the different wine from Sasikaya. Really? Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> and then you would drink that at home? Yeah. Yeah. 
And what was he like as a person, your grandfather? I mean, a uh, very vivacious, funny, uh, the ultimate prankster. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so many stories from from you know uh, him not liking the the uh, uh, the roast beef because it was overcooked, so sending it back to the kitchen while everybody waits at the table for a new roast beef to to be made. <laughs> was, was probably took a while, <laughs> forty minutes more or less, you know, and uh, and to playing prank. No, he was a prankster. He was a very very funny guy, and I think this came from his Piedmontese side. He also. Was in, an inc- he drew caricatures extremely well. So he had caricatures from everyone, uh, for all of his nephews, uh, underlying their, you know, their, uh, <laughs> their all their aspects of the characters, the good and the bad ones. So no, it was a, it was a joy to be around and always looked forward. I think that he was a much better grandfather than he was a father. I don't think that he he was a very good father. I mean, as anyone. You know, I'm telling you all of the positive things. I'm, I'm convinced that he, he also was a difficult man, uh, probably self-centered to a certain extent. I'm sure that my father, my uncle, and my aunt, maybe my aunt a little bit more because she was a girl, but I'm sure that they weren't recipient of a lot of affection and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I'm not sure how was their experience. Uh, us as nephews was certainly privileged, and I think it, it, it left an indelible mark on everyone of us, maybe for different reasons and for different things. Like I have a cousin who lives in Hungary, which has developed an incredible passion for for birds. He's an ornithologist, and and uh, you know everybody picked up something different. So um, uh, very fun, fun and and funny at the same time. And. Uh so after 1968, your uncle starts looking after the winemaking, and what were some of the milestones there after uh, it became? But in the early 70s, it won uh, multiple um, blind tastings. Uh, one in particular in London, and where uh, he beat uh, a lot of the uh, French uh, first growths. Of course, it, it, it's 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 it's. Maybe one of the people that contributed in 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 putting Sassicaia out there was uh, Veronelli, a very famous Italian uh, wine expert, which uh, def- defined the wine as a as a fairy tale, and uh, the Italian market took to it very fast, as a lot of demand. And um, but regardless of that, the wine stayed a table wine because there was not, not an appellation. My grandfather th- thought outside the box. He felt that uh, just like I believe my uncle feels that the appellations are too restrictive in Italy, you know, and and they're not uh, as conducive as you know. We're not yet where the French are in in a sense. Um, so. That was at the genesis of it, and then of course, uh, you know, uh, the perfect score, nineteen eighty-five, which was uh, maybe not the quintessential Sassicaia vintage. Of course, it's a great vintage. Don't get me wrong, but I think that uh, we, in the family, maybe we prefer maybe the eighty-eight that we find. Is that true? Yeah, we find it a little bit more, uh, more typicity for Sassicaia, more reflective of the family style, but. Um, of course, so the 1985 uh, was uh, was a, was a 
puts a sky on the map even in, in a stronger way. And then, you know, 94, when the, the one received his own private sub-appellation. It has its own appellation now. Yeah, it's a sub-appellation, it's Bolgeri Sasikaya, and, and uh, my uncle is the only living being today that, that managed to, to, to create that. And of course, uh, the government uh, was very proud of this and and to tr to change the status of sasikaya from a table wine to to bolgeri sasikaya it's it's very prestigious in a way uh, uh, you know maybe everything everything is a bittersweet in the sense because i would have loved for my grandfather to see what my uncle ended up accomplishing with his with his baby you know and i think he would have been extremely proud of that um so that 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 I think it's what set Sasikai apart from from all the other, especially you know when this word um, that was was coined for us as well, Super Tuscan was a word that was coined for Sasikaya. But then uh, everybody, you know, there was never a legal definition of Super Tuscan, so it, it it's something that can be confusing, misleading, and, and maybe it, it's something that you know, leaves the, the final consumer a little bit shortchanged at times because you can pay a lot of money for something that that doesn't give you any protection as a consumer, you know, uh, uh, as opposed to an appellation where you know where you stand. And and uh, so I, um, I think it's, 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 um, it's, these were the milestones for Sasikaya. Uh, I mean, there's many different stories and anecdotes, you know, uh, uh, but, but these were, I think, the main milestones. You know, 68, uh, the first um, release to the public. Uh, then uh, the 70s, where it confronted itself with a lot of the best governors in the world and, 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 and beat them. And then the 80s with the perfect score. And then the 90s with, um, with the, the awarding of the, this private subappellation. And your mother also had uh, property in Umbria. Yeah, my mom uh, is a fa family from Florence, and they were uh, large landowners. And on that side, also, I had a grandfather who was very much influential because he was uh, he was a brilliant man, uh, again a farmer. Um, and uh, he, uh, we we grew up a lot with our grandparents, uh, and uh, both grandparents, both on the on my mother and my father, was very present. So my grandfather from my mother's side, he used to take us on long walks and every time there was like a, a large stone, he would make us climb the stone and make a speech. And the speech always had to be something that we were observing in nature. <laughs> so I think that uh, he taught us how to observe and really look at things, especially things within nature. When he died, um, uh, my, grandma, my, my mother chose two, two properties in Umbria and uh, which have uh, their contingents on one another and uh, they have a fantastic terroir and in there we, we inherited some vineyards that had been planted um, still when my grandfather was alive and so over there we make some some white wine which is a Orvieto Classico Superiore which is a, you know, I think Orvieto is to Umbria like Chianti is to Tuscany in a way you know it's maybe the most known uh, appellation in Orvieto and uh, we make some reds too, but the, the terroir is incredible, and I think there is a possibility to make some some very fine wines as well. Not just not just simple wines, uh, but some some wines that maybe a little bit more, you know, more complexity. A lot of times people think of Orvieto <laughs> as a fairly straightforward wine. Why do you think that is? Um, 
I think that unfortunately, Orvieto and the region has always uh, promoted a, a policy of, of uh, large production with large yields, and um, that has diluted uh, uh, a sense of place and a sense of terroir within their wines. And then with the arrival of the co-ops, uh, they were buying volume, you know. Uh, in, in France, they pay accordingly to the quality of your grapes. Uh, in Umbria, they don't do that. So people, uh, you know, and the, so therefore, you're driven to have high, high yield. But then, you know, uh, the, the the flip side of that is that you're 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 diluting your your the complexity. You know, the the grapes are are not what they could be. So that translates into wines that maybe lack of character, or they uh, maybe they're watered down, and and so on and so forth. So. I think that's what lacked in Umbria. And, you know, it's funny because uh, the, the Orvieto that we make, uh, when I was managing that uh, that winery, I was always fights with the accountant that said we didn't make any money, so he wanted to stop making the wine. Yeah, luckily, we don't have any debt. So for us, it's, 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 it's not a matter of money. But um, it's very challenging because you, you can make a great Orvieto and, and nobody will pay the price that you, you want. And what is that property like, the Salvioni? Salviano is a, it's an amazing, amazing property. It's contingent to the other estate called Titignano. I think that together they hold for maybe 8,000, 7,000, 8,000 acres. And in a way, it's, it was treated a little bit like Bulgar in the sense that uh, uh, none of uh, the Corsini, which is my mom's family, ever did a real estate development. So you have... Uh, an incredible amount of farmhouses that are a little bit falling apart. So that's its charm. It's just this delabre aspect to, to the estate. Lots of forests and a, a landscape that is completely unspoiled. Uh, you don't see any new construction. So it, it's beautiful. In, you know, Umbria is, is often is called the Garden of Italy because it's very lush. And though, even though it's southern, it's, su- it's south of Tuscany, it, it's at a higher altitude. Uh, so the vegetation is beautiful. It's very, very green, and and it's fairly undiscovered still. So I mean, undiscovered. Maybe that's not the right word, but it, it doesn't have the draw that Tuscany has, and and in many ways that's the beauty of it. So, and besides, the food is amazing. And speaking of undiscovered, uh, you're now uh, working with a project in Argentina in Patagonia, and how did that come about? Mm. Well, I think a little bit of a fluke. In the sense that um, I um, I always was very much interested in in um, in Pinot because he's a he's a grape that I started drinking at a younger age with with my grandfather, and um, after a, a weekend at the wine experience, I was invited uh, to have dinner at my distant cousin's house here here in New York. And uh, during the dinner, many wines were floated, and one of the wines that was floated was uh, a bottle of Pinot. And I found, I thought that it was it was weird because it didn't feel like a Pinot from the old world, but it didn't really feel like a Pinot of the new world. Oh, okay. The fruit was a little in between worlds. Yeah, like the fruit was slightly more pronounced. Yet there was a vibrancy. Uh, the wine was very much alive. It was very mineral. Um, the acidity was very much present, so the fruit was not overripe. The wine was not overly concentrated. 
and yet it it expressed uh, very much some 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 pino like uh, qualities so difficult to guess what it was um i th- was more inclined to think burgundy than 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 let's say the new world but it turned out that this wine had been made by a, a young winemaker that then became a very dear friend to me hans winding deers who's a uh, grew up in bordeaux and had worked a little bit throughout the world making wines in 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 most remote areas in both the new world and the old world and uh he had um offered uh, he had been offered a consultancy job in in the Rio Negro Valley in in I mean the state of Rio Negro which is uh, uh, south of Argentina and uh, so you know sometimes it happens you drink a wine and and it stays with you there's a memory that stays in your palate that that grabs you in in a, in a different way it's funny as as humans we have so many different way to experience things and maybe we're not even present to them but it kept coming back to me so i i start uh, writing uh, noemi who who's my cousin and and they finally accepted for me to go down there and be a seller hand for for the harvest remember it was a, it was in a warehouse with the dirt floor and uh, some 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 vats uh, it was very much a makeshift winery i mean talking about garagiste i mean garagiste would have been luxury i think we had two light bulbs and, and a little thing of wood i mean <laughs> and and we would fight who did the pijage in the morning because it's so cold that you wanted to warm up with some some good old physical labor so and so that gave me the, ch- the opportunity to look for vineyards in, in during the weekends and uh, by that time we've met a, a gentleman that worked for the government and he was an inspector so he had access to all the documents that um, showed the year of the planting and the and the grapes so we went through a lot of them and then he showed me a vineyard of pinot which was had been planted by two uh, Italian gentlemen from southern Italy called the Napoletano brothers in, in, in the early 30s. And then subsequently was sold to Mr. Piri, who's another Italian from... from. So this vineyard, oddly enough, had, had been planted uh, A, of a grape that was not known to be, uh, you know, present. Uh, at least, of course, it's present, but very little uh, uh, vineyard holdings are of, of Pinot in Argentina. B, uh, Massal, because it's, uh, in this land there is no philosopher, or at least if there is, it's very much unchecked. as sandy soils that they use. Usually, historically, they irrigated by flooding them, so that's probably deterred philosopher from propagating. And so we, this is how we started, and then uh, Hans... Uh, uh, very much encouraged me. He said, "Why don't we start something and uh, help you out?" And so we rented the vineyards for one year. And I remember renting a, a butcher's truck because butcher's truck are refrigerated. We picked the grapes early in the morning. That my mistake was that I got there a little bit too late in the season. So uh, there's a very strong population of of, of uh, pigeons and, and, and doves that ate maybe 70% of the grapes. And so we picked the remainder of the grapes and, and we drove them in this, I drove them in this refrigerator truck to Noemi and Hunt's winery and then started making there uh, uh, some experiments. And that was 2004. And uh, how, how were you, how happy were you with the first few wines that came out? Well, you know, we, we had very little expectations. 
I think actually the first batches was in 2003. It was not very good. And then we went at it in 2004 again. And uh, the first results were encouraging. Encouraging in the sense that when you when you get to a new vineyard that is so old, in this case, this 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 this, this vineyard was planted in 1932. So, and and it's not very well kept. Um, you you know you're you're experimenting because you know that it will take you a while to get the vineyard to the condition that you would wanted to have in order to have some real tangible experiments that, you know, they're, they're, you know, I mean, the vineyards has to be up to speed for you to, so we believe that the potential was there and, um, but, you know, we, we wanted to change a lot of things. Farming, first of all, stop irrigating the way they did it because the, the sheer mass of the water when you irrigate a vineyard by flooding as it seeps to the soil, it's extremely heavy and it compacts the soil, affecting and stripping it with a lot of his nutrients and then and the reminder of the nutrients have a tendency to flee because there's less less stuff for them to eat so then uh, that has negative repercussion on the vineyard itself so l- lack of vigor less foliage and 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 maybe unbalanced grapes so for us uh, we set out to with an approach that was uh, biodynamic and organic because we felt that we wanted to stop uh, not just this irrigation practice, but also practice of, of, of using chemicals, which was not done in every vineyard, not in the 1932, because that was semi-abandoned, but the one that was planted in 1955. And so did you purchase the vineyard so you could implement those changes? or? Well, we ran to them, and then when I went to see him, he says, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy you came to see me because I'm going to rip, rip these vineyards out and plant some, some apples because I, c- I can make more money from these apples because these vineyards are so old. Their natural yield is so small and the bunches are, you know, they're very, very minute. So um, um, this is never going to be making an economical sense for me. So, uh, you know, misery of some, happiness of others. Uh, everything that was not good for him was good for us. So we managed to pur- purchase it even though he was i don't know if it was a, a technique or, or not but he 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 did not seem to be inclined in selling it but he did so we purchased it we we changed uh, the the farming uh, practices and we did so for for the last 10 years now we have a tendency to stand back and observe we believe that the vineyard has reached equilibrium and we've restored equilibrium within the soil and, and it's, its natural balance. You know, the worms and the bugs and have come back. We have an incredible large population of anything from butterflies to hares to bees and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a happy vineyard again. The biodiversity, I think, has been restored. And uh, we feel that now it's time to step back and just observe, as opposed to keep routinely doing certain things just because you think you're supposed to be doing it. And Patagonia is probably not an area that a lot of people are familiar with. What would you say about it in general as a viticulture zone? I would say that it's the Garden of Eden. And if the secret gets out, uh, there'll be a lot more people coming. It's, it's It's a desert, so... The very definition of the desert is you have strong luminosity, which is great for for maturation. You always get a very slow and even maturation. You have almost a constant wind that is a cleansing factor. 
uh, and a, a that is held by a very low humidity around that hovers around 30%. So already the low humidity does not create an environment for pest and disease to propagate. And then the constant wind further decreases that, that element. So uh, that uh, coupled with the long nights that give the plants the ability to rest and to preserve some of its acidity and, and, and maybe develop finer tannins to the, the Masal vineyards that are engrafted and, 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 and they're quite old uh, to this strong luminosity and, and, and a riverbed environment because this was uh, all, all of the farm holdings of the regions are planning on the riverbed. And the access to water, um, all the elements are there that are very conducive to farming in general. Um, so I, I, the, the microclimatic conditions are, are, are close to perfect. And what different wines are you making there? Uh, we've decided to focus on Pinot because it's the most finicky and the most difficult grape to grow and to, and to ferment, I think, in my opinion. And, but we also inherited a small plot of Merlot which was part of the third farm because I bought four farms overall. They're one next to the other. And so we make a, a small production of Merlot, which is also comes from a vineyard that is uh, Massal and, and, and ungrafted. And uh, what's that cuvee called? It's called Maike. Maike, which is the name of the village. And the chakra is the Pinot Noir. Yeah, the winery is called Bodega Chakra. And Bodega Chakra means... I mean, uh, for the lack of a better word, makes two crew uh, in the sense of single vineyard wines. One planted in 1932, it's called Trentaidos, which is the literal transition transition of that. And the other one is called uh, Cinquantesinco because the vineyard was planted in 1955. Then we have an entry-level wine, which is uh, Barda. Barda means uh, the ridge. And that has a, its own vineyard that is almost 20 years old. Also, none of these vineyards were planted by me. These were inherited by, by us. But, um, and also Barda follows a little bit the classical approach to the second label in the sense that it's the recipient of the declassification of the grapes, both from the vineyard planted in 1932 and the vineyard planted in 1955. So that allows us to have constantly try to, to push the quality of, of the top uh, single vineyards. At the same time, it raises the quality of Barda because it's the recipient of, of some of those grapes. But we, we treat everything the same way, in the sense we, the vineyards receive the same treatment. So it's been 10 years, and uh, you know, you've achieved, as you spoke about, a level of equilibrium. What, do you, what have you noticed over those 10 years that maybe you didn't see when you first got there? What have been the major observations? Well, first of all, I will always remember the, what Hans said when I got there. He says, uh, you remember what you've learned um, at home? He said, yeah. He goes, well, take the little virtual booklet and throw it in the trash. Because here, whatever you know to be true in Europe, it's not true here. So it took a while for those words to sink in and to really understand the, the, the meaning of them. But um, the learning curve has been constant. And uh, I think we still have a, a long road to go, but we've, 
we we've uh, I think that we've experienced three different stage of evolutions: 2003, 2004, 2005, one, 2006, 2007, eight, and nine, two, and then 10, 11, 12, third. Uh, as the soils are being cleaned, as the immune system of the vineyard is enhanced, as the foliage have gone from a third of a square meter to a square meter, um, the, 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 the grapes that these vineyards are yielding are, are a different quality. So we've seen an evolution of the vineyard itself, thanks to the practices that we've implemented. And then we have changed uh, our barrel regimen because uh, you know it's trial and error. And in Burgundy, they've been doing that forever. We haven't. Besides, we're in the Southern Hemisphere, so we can't copy Burgundy because it just wouldn't work. That's not what we want to do. So, learning curve has, has been has been pretty steep, and um, um, I see that. Uh, we're, we got so much closer to where we want to be. And also thanks to, you know, I, I, I'm very privileged that I have uh, a lot of friends that are sommelier in the U.S. And uh, I go with them from time to time to Burgundy and we get to taste and, and try things. And in parallel, I, I, I've known for a while people in Burgundy because I did a, a harvest at uh, DDO, the Mandruin, Oregon. So I got to meet uh, Veronique and her dad and uh, other people. So I've, I've 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 been going to Burgundy, and they've been always very, very open and 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 sharing questions, and so that has helped, you know. And and um, so I think that we have a long way to go, but I'm I'm happy where we are today. And at the end of the day, for me, it's not really about reaching a goal because I don't think you ever reach a goal. It's about you know, being in the moment and enjoying what you have and, and trying to get the most out of it and trying to be as present as you can so you can pick up those subtleties that will help you for the next harvest, which will be different any, anyhow. So, you know, every year you sort of, it's like making a painting. It's, it's, it's never the same. And, uh, and I think it's an evolution for us. But everything has evolved, you know, as my, my relationship with my... Uh, enologist Hans has evolved. We sort of grew up together. We sort of it's, so it's a it, it it's a it's a it's been a very interesting uh, path. And you brought a 2010 Pinot Noir, the Cinquenta Cinco from yeah. Chakra uh, today. I wonder if you could tell me uh, as we taste it, what do you think are some of the real standout characteristics, or what doesn't stand out? What's what's harmonious about it? I brought this vintage because we decided to, um, you asked for, to do this, inter this interview in the morning. And I thought that we deserved the wine with low alcohol uh, so that we could drink it without, start slurring on the mic. <laughs> but uh, You've heard the other interviews. <laughs> you know me well. Um, so, I... Um, I, I this is a, 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 a wine that comes from a vineyard that has a higher concentration of clay and, and sand, and it, it's, it's, it, it, it's clay that derives from sand as well. Uh, this wine, from the beginning, we had a different approach to fermentation in the sense that we, we were doing it in full bunches uh, without stemming it. And then also it, it, we do it at, at lower temperature fermentation, so it, it's, it's, it's a slightly longer... Uh, maceration as well. 
this was a little bit of a of an interesting vintage because 2010 uh, we had something very special on our hands and then right before i got to the vineyard maybe one day before we were the recipient of a freakish uh flash um hail which uh, lightly touched um the side of this vineyard when i got there uh we started talking with hans and and we went up and down and we looked at the vineyard and he is always a little bit more paranoid than I am. And he said, we should pick. We should pick because by being organic and biodynamic, we have no way of protecting. And it's too late anyhow in the game when this happened. So uh, the fear was, you know, um, that we might lose uh, the whole crop. So we, we picked it early, earlier than planned. But yet we, we noticed that there was phenolic maturation. Um, so we have a wine that uh, it's at 11 and a half, 11.4 to be precise, alcohol, and yet there is no greenness in it. Uh, and we're in the new world. So uh, it, it gave us a glimpse into what's possible by forcing us to pick it in the moment that we believe was the wrong moment. And 2010, I think, was a turning point for Chakra because that influenced um, or, or, or open a new door, for the lack of a better word, or, or showed us a, a, another slice of what's possible, another slice of the pie that we were not privy to it. And I think that following this experiment, uh, we, it influenced what we were doing. Because uh, you described 10 as the start of the third stage for yes, the revolution. Yes, because then a wine like this demands lower toasting otherwise you're just you your oak is going to be too pronounced which we got there already before to 10 the light toasting but that you know winemaking often you your your hands are tied so people say oh great so you have light toasting on the 2010 because it was low in alcohol and that's what you're thinking well, bullshit, because I ordered my barrel six months ahead. I had no clue what it was going to be like. So in a way, we were lucky because ha had we had a heavier toasting in this barrel, I don't think we would have the same wine and it would not be the wine that we were looking to have. So luck very much helped us. And luck helped us that we ordered this barrel two years in advance because 55 has no new oak. It's 100% either one wine or two wines. Um, so yeah, 2010 was, 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 I think, at the genesis of the third stage, which uh, ha helped us understanding new things and trying our hand at new things. So if you look at the wines of Chakra, I think that 04 or 05 are slightly more rustic. 04 was an abandoned vineyard that we just got to harvest based on somebody else's work. 05 was the first year that we worked the vineyard so the results I don't think were there yet because it takes four to five years maybe more to really maybe see the first results you know and then uh, 06 uh, we started to have the first glimpse of what we believe uh, was possible 07 uh, reminiscent of, of 010 in the sense it was a colder vintage but by colder vintage 
you know, means warm days and cold nights. So like for instance, right now, uh, yesterday was 28 degrees uh, uh, Celsius and was 16 at night. So at night you almost want to turn the heat on and during the day you're in a t-shirt. So uh, when I say cold vintage, uh, it's all relative, you know, keep in mind we're in a desert and we have strong luminosity, so it can be misleading my, my definition. But I find the O7 very much close to the O10, except that um, I think in the O10 our soils were much cleaner and we were, uh, we had more foliage on the vineyard on the vines and also the way we pruned was different. So the, there was, it was more of a balanced uh, vineyard. And then uh, arguably maybe 11, the most complete vintage we've had. Uh, I love the Otan. I think it's long. I think it's extremely delicate. I think it's, it's complex at the same time. And I mean, in my opinion, it stays in your palate for a minute, a minute and a half. It maybe it's not as flashy. Um, but, you know, sometimes I just like to sit down and have a glass of wine without thinking what I'm drinking. And this perfectly fills that, you know. And I can drink a bottle on my own without being completely inebriated or falling off the chair. And it's rewarding to me. And I can have it with just about anything. And those are also the wines that I like to drink, you know. I think that the difference, um, I don't know, I grew up in a way that you open one bottle of wine and you drank it and you stayed with that bottle. Today's people seem to having this need of having 15 bottles and constantly comparing things. I, I think it's important also to have that experience. Uh, but you have to like that one that you're going to choose. In a way, it's a return to your grandfather who... Made a wine for himself. Yeah, you have the one like the one that you choose. That's why it's imperative that you make something that you like, not something for a critic that lives in a different country that you've never met. And maybe, you know, he spends his day eating, I don't know, fish. And maybe you're a carnivore. You know, I mean, that plays that that plays a big role. The kind of food that you're that you're that you're eating, I think it, it will drive the, the choice of wine that you're making. At least it does for me. So, yeah. I think that's very true in the Piemonte. I mean, I think part of the reason that the Barolo sees less of a reception than other wines is that the diet in Piemonte is so meat-heavy and other areas don't have the same diet. And the wines seem a little bit incongruous sometimes. But, you know, I don't know. That's an argument because I think that wines today in Tuscany, especially some of the super Tuscan, and they're far more concentrated than Barolos and they're far more extracted and you really need to eat zebra. Yeah, right, right, right. You, you know, right. I mean, what... Venison. What, what else can you drink with a wine that is so powerful and, 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 and you know, it, it's challenging. While I find some Barolos to be delicate enough that they can almost do the crossover for roast salmon, for instance, or mm. for winter vegetables. And, and I don't find that to, to be possible with with some of the uh, more modern wines made in Italy today. So almost in a way, you you wouldn't necessarily agree with the uh, the fulfillment of what started in Bulgari. You know the way that the direction it actually took in reality, not from what you did, but from what others who followed in your wake did. But, you know, I don't have to like it. Right. And that's the beauty of it, that everyone does whatever they want and that they find an audience within. Um, What's the risk? I'm sorry. No, I think that, you know, in a way, when you start uh, tasting, not drinking, because I wasn't drinking when I was young, but I was tasting wines that were at the table. 
and, and, and you have that as a benchmark, as a reference, then I think that you're getting used to identifying things that are slightly more subtle and less obvious. And when something that is more extracted and more tannic and more concentrated is presented to you, you have a rejection for it. It's a little bit like music, you know. If you're used to a certain type of music, but I believe that this happens at a molecular level, not just within your palate. So your body chooses for you. And I think that if, if that's the case for me, my body chooses for me. And, and in Bulgari, I think that my body chooses Sasikaya uh, and it doesn't choose the other ones. And it, it would be arrogant for me to say that those wines are bad because they find an audience. So some people see something for them that is appealing to them. I like subtleness. You know, I like maybe walking on your toes more than stomping around. Um, and I, 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 I like uh, subtle complexities. And, uh, and, and I think that the, the terroir in which those wines are made today in Bulgari, it's far more sandy and it's a warmer terroir. So maybe those are the wines that they can make there. And you're, you know, you have experience growing up in rural areas like Umbria and Bulgari and then working today in a rural area in Patagonia. Uh, but you also have a pretty broad traveling experience to major metropolitan areas. You studied in school in New York. You studied in school at Pepperdine in California. Um, and you studied in Switzerland. So you've been all around the world. What has it been like trying to find your own audience for the wines that you're making in Argentina? Extremely difficult because Argentina is a country that primarily is known as the producer of Malbec. So Pinot in Argentina on an international level never really received much consideration. Secondly, uh, the Pinot drinkers until very recently, I think with the phenomenon of, 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 of Oregon that then almost today seems to be overshadowed by the phenomenon of Pinot from California. But Pinot drinkers were primarily people that were wealthy successful and that they were the third, fourth or fifth generation of Pinot drinkers because their parents, grandparents before that were the recipient of allocations. And they were set on, 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 on a certain ideal, a certain preconceived notion, maybe rightfully so, because I, 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 you know, I think that the only ones that were worthy to be called Pinot were coming from Burgundy until, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. So to get in the marketplace uh, with a wine, a Pinot from Patagonia, it's, you know, I remember a sommelier in London that at first asked me, oh, I said, I didn't know that you guys bought vineyards in Burgundy. And when I said, I'm actually in Patagonia, he didn't laugh, but he was holding his laughter. Um, so for me, it's been the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life to bring these wines to market. And the only way that I know how to do it is to go open some bottles and share that with people and then let them make their own mind whether it is something that is appealing to them or not. But it's been an incredible challenge. Unfortunately, nobody uh, really gave consideration to Pinot from, from, from Argentina. 
And so we had to create something that wasn't there. And, and it's difficult. But at the same time, I think that I'm happy that it's difficult uh, because I like uh, things that are challenging and they give a little bit more meaning to to what we do. Uh, you know, through the years, I also uh, have the great privilege and luck to work with a team that has devoted their life to what we do. And that also gives me the the, the great strength to, to go and keep what I'm doing. It's you know, it's 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 difficult, uh, more difficult at times than others. But I think that you know, maybe time will tell whether we're we're going to be successful or not. And you've had many wines over the course of your career. Are there standout moments that really affected your own view of what your palate was, what your family's palate was, or just your view on what you were looking for in life? Special moments. You know, many special moments. Uh, um primarily i think uh consistent special moments always with older vintages of sasikaya that believe it or not we don't within the family don't get to drink that much i often drink them with generous clients that are collectors and and share them with me and from time to time with my uncle as well but um it, it, it to get a a window in the past and and being the recipient of of that it's it's always very um illuminating in the sense so a very recent one is again uh, tried the o2 vintage of sasigaya which was very much discarded by the press uh, some people almost got offended that sasigaya made a wine in 2002 that's probably because they didn't travel all over Europe and all over Italy and all over Tuscany. So they didn't really understand that Sassicaia is a different microclimate than Chianti, where temperature is rising much quicker. We are waterfront, so we don't have that phenomena. But so O2, it's showing incredibly well right now. And, and so did uh, 98 uh, the night before last night, which was a, v- a vintage overshadowed by the O7. So Yes, uh, I had some incredible moments with 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 uh, wines that that got me thinking. Lots of them with our own wines, and uh, lots of them with Burgundy and, and and some with Bordeaux as well. But they were all tied to a human experience. So there was always other people present that made that moment special, and the wine was one element, but not the single element. And I think that. Uh, um, because we have a predisposition. So if you're happy and you're within the right environment with the right people, that wine will taste a lot better to you uh, on a molecular level. And, you know, uh, if you're not happy, uh, your stomach cringes, the acid travels to your palate, uh, and, and that changes the way you're tasting things. So so I, I, I always link incredible moments with people and places, you know. I remember drinking a bottle of Rousseau with, 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 with a friend of mine who's a sommelier in California in his restaurant, and we drank it in 22 minutes, I think, and without even noticing. The wine was amazing, and the human moment was amazing. It was not even a deep intellectual moment. It was fun and funny, and uh, that, 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 that was an incredible experience. So I tied very much wine with people and places and food. If it were to happen 
through a miracle that one of those people would be again your grandfather, what might you ask him if you had the chance? But I think I would like for him to taste the wine and see what he thinks of it. Because I know that he was a very straightforward individual, so he wouldn't lie to me. He wouldn't. Uh, yeah, the, you know, the thing is that I dream of him often and, and I'm always very bitter when I wake up because he's not there. So it pisses me off that I don't get to pick his brain and, and, uh, and share. And, uh, but I have my uncle, so I can do that with him, even though he's, he's, he's much more introverted and shy than my grandfather. So it, it takes a, it, it's a different. The second or third bottle, not the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's also the environment, you know, with, with, with great privilege come great responsibilities. And this is a man that has a lot of responsibilities that lay on his shoulders. So it's, it takes a while from people to, you know, let go of their responsibility, not let go because you never let go of them, but, you know, to relax, to be in an environment that it comes out in an organic way. And I think that my, maybe, um, with my grandfather, that was possible because it was a different time and, and, and the mood was different. And I think that my uncle was already in charge when we were in, in, in Switzerland trying wines and, and, and playing around. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have one question. I would have a million questions because there is so many question marks. And I think this is one of the maybe more bittersweet things about getting older is that you got to meet some incredible people when you were a kid. Trouble is when you were a kid, you weren't smart enough to, or you, you weren't where you are today that you have those questions. So you didn't ask them back then, and today you're, you're left with, with those questions and, and you can't really ask them to them. So that's, that. but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged and I'm lucky because I, there's a lot of people that I can reach out to and ask questions and, and there's a lot of very generous people in our business that will sit down with you to have a conversation and share their thoughts. So that, that's positive. No, and not just, not just the old wise men, you know, even some, um, I speak often about sommelier because I think that sommelier are in a way what, what is reset, has reset the wine business lately. I think that we've gone from a moment in which, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have wine glasses. You, you open a bottle of wine, if it was cork, you open another, the glasses were very small. You poured a little bit of glass, you had it with the food, that was the end of that. Decanters were present, but primarily in Bordeaux, <laughs> not in Italy, and I don't think in Burgundy either. Now it's all about big glasses and swirling and, 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 and things. But at the end of the day, wine is wine. And, and, and I think that uh, we've gone from a period where the, the critics were kings. And nowadays we've, we've had the privilege and the luck to have a movement of intelligent driven individuals that no matter what trade they could have picked, they would have been extremely successful. And they gave in to their passion for wine, even though it was not very monetarily rewarding. But the nature of the human was that one, driven, balanced, honest in most cases. So I think they, they helped in providing an alternative point of view. And they've managed by being on the floor in, in, in very wealthy metropolitan areas, which could be London or New York, to consistently try many different wines in many different vintages with a, with a certain frequency. And I think that them, 
more so than most other people on the planet, have gained a, a very um, complete understanding of wines much more so in a way than a producer that has a tendency to, to be much more focused on its wine and maybe develop tunnel visions at times. So uh, um, I think that uh, they are, um, and there is a few of them, you know, there's not one, two or three. I mean, some are um, maybe more experienced than others, but they've helped to rebalance uh, the scene, I think. And, uh, and um through them, I also got to experience things that I would ne never done, and and I'm, and I'm grateful because it's a constantly learning, learning experience. You know, it's a little bit like going to visit some of these wine producers in Champagne or in France, and and you know, when you're translating between two parties, you get to translate questions that you would have never asked, and these are questions that come from a sommelier, not the wine producer. So it, it again, it's the, the extra slice of the pie that comes up to you and and and, and gives you a more complete picture. So um, I'm very grateful for that. So in many ways, as I've I've heard you say, uh, there are some real parallels between what you did in going to a remote area of the world and working on a a vineyard project there, and what your grandfather did in Bulgaria during his time. What do you think about those similarities and those differences, and what do they mean to you? Well, similarities, they are. It's, it's only later on that one gets to be present to the similarities. And in my case, I got present to them through the questions that people have asked me. I think that I was either too young or too crazy or, or too absorbed by what I was doing to be able to on an intellectual level, understand that there was a parallel between what I've experienced and what I was doing again. In retrospective, I understand that my childhood and what my grandfather did greatly influenced, at least on an unconscious and subconscious level, what I've done with the chakra, with, with the Patagonian winery. In reality, when I think of it, it makes me cringe a little bit because I think that my grandfather was... Uh, above and beyond what I'm doing in the sense he was far more intelligent, far more well-read, far more, um, I don't know. I, I don't think that I measure up to what he did. But I think that a lot of the actions that I'm taking today are linked to that, which is a bit eerie at the same time because, you know, maybe you realize that you're less in control of your thoughts and your action than what you thought that you were and that things happen on, on a subconscious way that uh, you, you would have never guessed. There is obviously a parallel. Uh, you know, I, I said that before, if I had to know, if I knew then what I know now, I'm not sure I would have done chakra because the challenge is... Is it true? Yeah, you know, you go into a one region where there is no know-how. It's not like going to Napa or Oregon and poach <laughs> other talent, winemakers, um, cellar masters, people that work in the vineyards. At Chakra, we had to start from scratch. So we had to bring in people that taught our guys about biodynamics. We held classes for the last 10 years about pruning biodynamics. We, we, we grabbed the, some of the top people in, in the world to do that. So the challenge is enormous and the social conditions are tough. People are- Working in Argentina stuff. Very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. Uh, you have access, 
you don't have access to capital. So it's, it's a, you know, one of your interviewers makes fun of me. Uh, I mean, one of your, the people that you interviewed, yeah, but it's true. I've been cutting checks for 10 years. So that's not something I envision going in. Um, so it's been extremely difficult. Uh, the road is all uphill, and uh, the uh, it's just it's just difficult all around. It's difficult because people don't drink Pinot from Argentina. People never heard of Pinot from Argentina. It's difficult because you don't have necessarily qualified personnel, so you have to train them, and and there is it's a revolving door. Uh, people don't stay that long because they are either not interested or not enough money or lack of passion, whatever it might be. So there are a lot of parallels uh, that I, that I, that I know is I discover them by chance. I discover them through questions that uh, have been asked. And uh, so that, that got me thinking, um, uh, hopefully in time we'll, we'll, we'll see if these parallels will materialize in a positive way or not. Do you think it gave you a greater appreciation for what your grandfather achieved? It gave me a greater appreciation for what my uncle achieved. I think my grandfather um, was in a radically different situation than my uncle. And I think that my uncle is really the person that made what Sasikaya is today. Of course, somebody else was a genesis of that, but... Um, he really made it his own, and and I, you know, I think I don't think I've ever said this before in my life, but I think that, in a way, today, Sasikaya is two people, and I see much more my grandfather on the label, but I see my uncle in the wine, and um, I, I I think that, you know. And time will tell, but I find myself to be much more, more and more and more, maybe because he's alive and I can talk to him and and I have a great appreciation, but I see in a very indirect way so much more his influence uh, present in my daily life than my grandfather. My grandfather's influence is present on a different level, you know. Um, so, yes, absolutely. And that also, you know, you internalize an understanding that it takes... 40, 50 years before you actually can look back and say it worked. Do you have children that can continue that legacy on for you, or do you have plans to have children? I would love, I would love to have children, but not necessarily to continue what I do. Uh, I think that I like to experience fatherhood because it seems to me that uh, any man cheats himself out of a real life if he doesn't experience fatherhood. Not that maybe it's a very selfish thing to say, maybe not because, you know, there's a lot of children nowadays that you can adopt and and maybe that's a possibility. But I think that it's important to get out of your head and your body and devote your time to something else. Even though having children is the most selfish act you could ever do because you're creating something for your own satisfaction and needs. Uh, you know, it's not like uh, your sister dies and you inherit her kid. In that case, it's a different story. But uh, I would very much like to be able to uh, devote myself to, to other things. Now, I don't have an ego that today asks of me to create someone that would pick my work. I don't really care f for that. I think that the best father for the right wine might not necessarily lay in your family. 
you might have other people that have more passion, more consideration, more appreciation than what family members do sometimes, that they're born in it and sometimes they're jaded or they don't see the preciousness and, and of that thing and, and the effort of, multi, of several generations. And, and, and I don't know, maybe I romanticize it too much, but I don't think that hairs of something usually are really the real hairs, you know, the one that deserve to have it. So I think that for people to maintain tradition through their own kids, it's a lottery. It, it's not something that one should expect. It's someone, it's something that you would, if you get it, you're lucky and you, it's important for that. But I don't look to continue or preserve my name. That's not important to me. What's important to me is that the wine stays. I'm not the person. The wine is the person. I think that the wine should stay. And I think that if you look at every great wine today, of course, it's a history of people. But what we have today is not those people, it's the wine. It thanks to those people that the wine exists. But they all work towards a common goal. It's to preserve and be the guardian of that heritage. And some people did better than others, but that was the common shared goal. So... Um, of course, then you have a kid, uh, you know, I have a fantasy to have a daughter who will become a winemaker because I think that women have far better palate and, 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 and in a way they're, they're better in the cellar than men. Uh, but uh, I, I am not banking on that. Piero and Chisa della Rocchetta, thank you for sharing that picture with us today. Thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.